So there's an old uh, preacher story about a British man who retired and finally got to do what he'd been wanting to do all of his life. <clears throat> he bought a Rolls Royce so he could tour Western Europe and see the sights over a, a few months. So he loaded his car onto the ferry and docked in France and began his trip. Well, as fate would have it, just days into his holiday, the car broke down. Frustrated, of course, he called the dealership where he'd bought the car, and the voice on the other line assured him that if he just had to find a place to stay the night, he could wait for help to come. Well, the very next day, the morning even, someone from Rolls-Royce arrived to his broken-down car. The man, the man could hardly believe the guy was there, much less the very next day. But, of course, the car was fixed and reassurances were given, and he went on his way. But through the rest of his holiday, he said, as much as he tried to enjoy the vacation, he couldn't because he kept thinking about how much it was going to cost him to afford that repair. Well, when his vacation was over, he realized it was time to pay the piper. So very dejectedly, he sent a letter to the people at Rolls-Royce, asked them exactly how much it was that the repair was going to cost him. Well, about two days later, he received a letter from the office which read simply one sentence. Dear sir, we have no record anywhere in our files that anything ever went wrong with a Rolls Royce. Sincerely. I love that illustration because it kind of sums up what we've been saying through all these chapters that Paul summarizes in chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul's not just saying that there isn't, that Christians are just not condemned. He's saying that just like that bill to repair the Rolls Royce, condemnation doesn't even exist anymore. It's not that we've moved out from under condemnation for a while, but it might come back. It's like it never existed. The great 20th century Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said this about this verse. He said, most of our troubles are due to failure to realize the truth of Romans 8.1. Here's what he meant by that. He said, what happens when we forget that there is therefore now no condemnation is we usually go back to guilt as our primary motivational force in life. But of course it doesn't work because that just builds up more shame. And eventually we start to resent God for his authority over us. No, Paul is convinced that the only way to a really changed life is when God's people are deeply and powerfully convinced of the freedom that's been won for us in Christ. The question becomes, how is that going to happen? Romans 8 is the answer to that question. But the answer very specifically is sprinkled throughout. Did you notice it? How many references were there to the Holy Spirit through these chapters? I, I counted 15 references in just 17 verses. And I do realize that when, when, when religious people start talking about the Holy Spirit, lots of people kind of flinch. It's like, all right, it's about to get weird. But it's not, don't worry about that because in Romans 8 is going to clarify for us that the purpose of the Spirit is to bring believing people into a life that is marked by no condemnation and an assurance about that very fact. And as it turns out, a non-condemned life is marked by characteristics what we might call signs that the Spirit's work indeed is working in you. And of course, that may surprise you. I noticed three. Number one, we see that the Spirit brings sanctification. Number two, the Spirit brings resurrection. And then finally, the Spirit brings sonship. 
Let's take that first one, sanctification. Look, verses 1 through 8, I realize, can be a bit monotonous when you first read through it. And that's because Paul is using some technical terms that you and I aren't used to using. But I do think the best summary of this first section is in verse 6, when Paul says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Let's unpack that for a second. First of all, when Paul uses the word flesh, He's not talking about our physical bodies with skin and bones and muscles. Instead, what he's talking about is, is all of the things inside of us that hate God's rule over us. It's the sinful nature that he's talking about when he uses the word flesh. But in contrast to the flesh, he sets the Holy Spirit. What did he do? Well, verse 3 says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Well, of course, when he says God, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. His role, we find out in verse 4, was to fulfill the, quote, righteous requirement of the law. Look, remember a couple of weeks ago when we were studying in Romans 7, Paul says the law is not your problem. It was your sinful nature stirred up by the law that brought condemnation home to you. But Paul's point was is that Jesus on the cross absorbed the condemnation that we deserved, thereby bringing salvation. Now look, for those of you who've been with our study, that's all review of Romans up until this point. What's new here is that Paul now explains that now in a Christian, there are two competing forces inside a Christian conscience. On the one hand, there's the law of the flesh, and on the other hand, there's the law of the Spirit. And now that our condemnation has been taken away, it's the role of the Holy Spirit to bring you out of that death and into that life. Again, verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Here's what I want to focus on for just a second. Notice the way Paul puts that. He keeps talking about setting the mind on the flesh or setting the mind on the spirit. Paul actually talks this way a lot. Remember back when we were studying chapter 6, we got to verse 11 where Paul says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He does this throughout. Even Galatians 5, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit that you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Again, in Ephesians 4, 24. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now look, I could go on. But notice what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that it is the work of the Holy Spirit to bring about a change in you. You should know that. The difference is the manner in which he is doing so. And the way in which he's going to do so is not by threatening you that you better do better. That's actually what preachers do, right? <laughs> preachers are the ones that threaten. Quite the contrary, though, the Spirit's role in changing believers is to get at the root of your motivations, and change you there. Think about this for a second. The Spirit's work is to point you to Jesus and therefore away from something else that is operating as a functional Savior for us. Take an illustration for a second. Let's imagine for a moment that you're struggling uh, with anger towards someone. You've got bitterness built up about someone who you are convinced robbed you of something. Maybe it was your actual money, for instance. It could have been perhaps your reputation, making you look badly. It might have even cost you your job. You can say all day long, I'm not going to be mad, I'm not going to be mad, I'm not going to be mad. 
It's not going to work. But that's not how it works. Instead, what Paul is saying is what I want you to do is to go in those places in your heart where you ask this question, wait a minute, why am I angry? Why am I angry? I'm angry because I believe that that person robbed me of something that I have to have in order really to be happy, in order to really have life, in order to really know that I'm lovable. I have to have that thing. In other words, we operate out of a posture of poverty, which Paul will say is slavery. So the Spirit of God doesn't come to you and say, now stop doing that. God's going to get you. That's not how God functions. Instead, the role of the Holy Spirit is to begin to flood your life by an assurance that there is now, therefore, no condemnation. For this very reason, and I can't overstate the importance of this next sentence, Paul knows that the reason that we give into temptation is because we are motivated by a sense of loss, a sense of not having something. And so to deal with this sense of loss, we are supposed to then set our mind, we are supposed to put on a new self, we're supposed to, to reckon ourselves, consider ourselves in the space of being ones who has received Jesus' fullness. And suddenly, when that happens, you begin to root out sin from the source. This is exactly what Christians call the activity of sanctification. That's the big word we use there. Because that little word, set the mind, is interesting. Translated as meaning absorbed, absorbing objects of thought, interest, affection, and purpose. That's what Paul means. What he's saying is, is they have found the Spirit is to come to make you preoccupied with something in that location inside your soul where you get engrossed in something. Where all of a sudden you become to spend your time and your energies. You begin to concentrate on it. You give your daydreams to it. Your money follows it. So powerful. Because for a lot of us, we can't imagine having anything in our lives that would conjure up that kind of energy, that kind of absorption. But don't miss the point. Paul is saying that it is the Spirit's job to lead you to that thing. In other words, there is something that the Spirit will show you that is so captivating that it comes with its own mesmerizing agent already built in. Now, you should be wondering at this moment, if you're following along with the sermon, what in the world could that be? Well, that brings me to my second point. Not only does the Spirit bring sanctification, but secondly, the Spirit brings resurrection. When the old school jazz musicians like Miles Davis or John Coltrane used to do live performances, every now and then they would report having this experience of just sort of being free from thinking about what they were doing. You know, their instrument and their instincts and their talent just takes over and suddenly just music starts to pour out of them in reaction and expression. But oftentimes they would refer to it as starting to cook. Ah, listen to old Charlie Parker up there. He's really starting to cook. Well, look, in verses 9 through 11, Paul's starting to cook. That's what's happening. Why? Because he's getting caught up in the mesmerizing work of the Spirit. And the first thing he races to in terms of his preoccupation is Jesus' resurrection. It's the first thing out of his mouth. Follow the logic in verse 10. He says, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin... The Spirit is life because of righteousness. You can sum up everything that he's saying this way. Yes, your body is in decay, 
And death is invariably coming for all of us. But the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in you, and he has begun a process of causing death to work backwards, to use C.S. Lewis's phrase. And look, so it's Easter, which means it's appropriate for us to think through again how powerful this point is. It is the Spirit's power that raised Jesus from the dead. But don't mistake this. That same Spirit is in the life of every Christian trying to take the dead things in you and make them alive. And the reason I'm putting it that way is because the truth is there really are two, there really are two different kinds of death at work in us on a regular basis, is there not? There's a sense, first of all, in the most obvious sense, of a looming coming death, of the end of my physical life. But what's interesting about that is when you set that out in your future and you know that's coming, the Bible actually says the knowledge that you know that that's where it all ends ruins the rest of your life. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, listen to this. Um, it talks about Jesus dying on the cross so that, quote, through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those, listen, listen, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Did you catch that? The writer of Hebrews is saying, living with the unavoidable fate of death hanging over us is like slavery. It ruins everything. It ruins everything now. There's a wonderful collection of essays by a guy named Richard Beck. By the way, nowhere near all of the contents of which I would recommend. But it's called The Slavery of Death. And it's extended treatment on this. And in one chapter, he talks about how different death is in our day from what it used to be. There was a day that when someone in your family passed away, the body would lie in state like in a front parlor or something. Or on your dining room table, literally until such a time as the mortician could make it into town and prepare the body, right? He even went to mention that there were, most of the time on family land was where you had cemeteries, right next to the living spaces almost always. And his point is this fact that when you grew up, you did so with the constant specter of death almost all around you. But all that changed, he said, with the advent of the hospital. Now look, hospitals are wonderful things, but there's a sense in which the hospital idea has made for our generation death to be so much more antiseptic, we could say. It's very rare that we're present when someone actually dies. We don't ever see the body except after it's been carefully prepared and, and displayed. But the effect of it all is to make us shocked when death finally arrives. Something, by the way, which every single person is going to experience, no matter what. What's the point? The point is we can do all we want and all that we can to avoid the presence of death, to set it aside, to push it away. But doesn't it make sense that if we're spending all this energy at avoiding the idea of death, don't you see how that could excite some problems in us? In other words, what if that fear of death is making us convinced that we're still enslaved to our flesh? <laughs> The very thing that Paul is saying that we're supposed to be free from. Look, no wonder that whenever you look through the recorded sermons in the book of Acts that the apostles first preached, you know what they were preoccupied with every single time? The resurrection. Over and over again. This was huge news. Death is conquered. And therefore, our slavery has ended. 
Once you take out the specter of that kind of loss, everything changes. And so it was all they could talk about. The Spirit leads us into that. Ah, but don't miss this. That's the first kind of death. There's a second death, though, that Paul is talking about in Romans 8. And that is the death, honestly, that comes to us before our deaths. In other words, Paul is saying by removing this looming threat of death, the Spirit then begins to bring things to life now. It's a perfect description of many places in your life that honestly are still dying. My guess is some of you, when you walk through your souls, could look back and say, yeah, there's a lot of dead places in my soul. You could look back and say, yeah, I watched my marriage fall to pieces. There's deadness in that. You can say, I've seen the rebellion of my children and the distance of my own children, and I've seen the death that comes from that. I feel it in my neighborhood. I feel it in my politics. I feel it in my education. But the Spirit's work is to engage in people and say, look, I'm going to remove the long-term threat of death. I've removed its sting. And because I've done that, I can now start to excite the things inside of you. And you can become an agent of resurrection yourself by relieving the places where there's suffering all around us. So the Spirit's work is to give us little samples, is he not? He comes and gives us these little drops of something now that's coming then. Ephesians 1.13, Paul says, Look, we were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, but that Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it. <laughs> that word deposit there means that little resurrections come in this life and they're all pointing to that one day someday when the great resurrections happen. This is why the hymn writer would say, the streams on earth that I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above because there to an ocean fullness his mercy does expand and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. So the Spirit brings resurrection, sanctification and resurrection. Thirdly, though, the Spirit brings sonship. Because here's the deal, Paul's still cooking. <laughs> and in verses 12 through 17, he lands on honestly what is one of the most precious truths that you can find throughout the entirety of the New Testament. And verse 14 sums it up perfectly. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You see the logic. Fixing your mind on the healing that comes through putting to death the misdeeds of the body will lead you to enjoy more deeply the fact that you are one of God's children. That you are one of his children. Not only that, but the old slavery that we used to live under, that spirit that's marked by fear, where we have to be afraid all the time, is marked instead by a spirit of adoption that is pure comfort and pure rest. You want to know why? Because it's marked out by people saying, Abba, Father. Now, I would be shocked if you're as religious to come to church on a Sunday morning. You haven't heard someone say, well, you know that Abba is an Aramaic word that we can translate affectionately as Daddy. And I don't think that's untrue. There's a sense in which that is true. However, the more that I've studied through this, and I've ran across a couple of commentaries that brought this out, I don't think that gets to the heart of this passage. Because Paul is writing in Greek, the whole letter of Romans. Why does he suddenly insert an Aramaic word in the middle of his speech? Here's why. Because when a child is newborn, she comes into the world needing to communicate. And almost literally, as soon as she leaves the womb, she begins to try to croak out sounds. And she learns as time goes on that as she croaks out these sounds, she gets what she needs and what she wants. But she doesn't have teeth yet. 
Her tongue has not learned to form words. Maybe her vocal cords are not developed. So what does she say? She says, Gaga, Mama, Dada, or Abba. That's all she can get out. Why? Because it is a primordial urge inside every small human being to reach out to someone who is Abba or Baba, whatever. Because what we're doing in that moment is we are looking for someone who is going to love us and never let us down. Yes, sure, it means daddy, but it's more than that. Can you see? Because this is the kicker. The human being who is a parent or a grandparent, none of us have fulfilled the desire behind the word Abba. None of us. What we want in that moment is someone who is going to love us all the time and is going to do so unconditionally and will never stop loving us and making us safe. One of the hardest parts about getting old is the realization that my children often reached for me and they did not get what they wanted. They didn't get what they needed. What they got was someone who was flawed. What they got was someone who was selfish, who wanted his way. My children were little. It was something just, just unmercifully cute. When they were little, they would walk up to me and they'd say, Daddy, Daddy, I want to hold you. There's nothing like the way a small child holds you, is there? The older kids, they don't hold you that way. You want to know why? Because they don't trust you anymore. They have learned that the little ones who are still in the Abba phase, they utterly trust you. Because you've all, you're all they've got. And here's what the Spirit is telling you. The Holy Spirit is designed to come into your life and say, you can trust the Father that way. Because the Father is who you're looking at for all of the things that you're striving for. The Father was the one you really wanted in your failed parents. The Father is the one that you were looking to in your attempts to be a better parent. Ever since you were a child. It reminds me of the story of the prodigal son. This young man demands his inheritance from his father, but he squanders it all. And sitting there in the midst of the squalor, he begins to rehearse this speech in hopes of getting back into the good graces of his father. He says, oh, Father, I've sinned against you. I don't even deserve to be called your son. Hey, make me like a slave in your house. But, of course, upon his return, the father will hear nothing of it. He won't even let him finish the part and get to the part about the slavery. You want to know why? Because that's not what the Spirit comes to do. And because the father knows that there is a universal human tendency in every heart to drift back into a spirit of slavery and of fear. That's the inertia of our hearts, unless the Spirit comes. And this is, what, this is all that Paul has been saying. At the root of your rebellion against God is not just the, the specter of death, but in the end it's the fear of being cast out. It's the worry that one day I will truly be abandoned. It's the fear of screaming out, Abba! And having nobody answer. But the role of the Holy Spirit is to come in and constantly remind you of who you are and what Jesus has made you to be and the kind of access you have to the Father. And the job of the Spirit is to show you that you have to be accepted in spite of your performance. That's what the Spirit's there to do. Why? Because that is the problem underneath all your problems. 
And I mean all. Whether it's problems in your marriage, problems in your jobs, problems in your conscience, problems in your mental health. It's all going to trace itself back to that. One last thing before we close. Verse 15 is talking about this new status that we have as infant children before God. But verse 16 is a little bit different. Look what it says. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Here's the deal. That verb bears witness is is a legal term that you would have heard in a courtroom. And you can imagine how it would work. Let's say you're on trial. All the evidence is against you. You're looking at the jurors and they all have doubt on their faces. But all of a sudden your lawyer bursts in with a star witness who totally exonerates you and sets you free. Put that together. Here we are. We're on the stand. You and I this morning are on the stand. And it looks as if the room is against us. Jesus, though, is our lawyer. He's there representing us. But we look around, even in the midst of that, and we think to ourselves, I'm glad you've assured me of this status, Lord, but it still looks like the the evidence is against me. It still feels that way. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit bursts in. (laughs) And in that moment, he begins to pour out a powerful sensation of being loved like a little child. Now, here's the deal. Most of us only get things like that in little bitty tiny drops. But for some of you, it has been a tidal wave of affection. Something that has washed over you like you never thought that it could. Dug up an illustration that Keller put in his book on prayer when he talks about the old Puritan Thomas Goodwin, 7th century Puritan pastor, who wrote that one day he was walking through his particular uh, village and there was a man and his young son walking along beside him. He was a few paces behind. And he said, all of a sudden, for no real reason at all, the father leaned down and he scooped up his son and he pulled him up in his arms and he kissed him. And he said, oh, do you know how much I love you? And Goodwin says, as I began to ponder that moment, I began to realize that son was no more his father's child when he was walking along beside him than he was when he had him up in his arms. But he said, oh... How much greater is the enjoyment of that sonship when the Father pours it out that way? That's what the Holy Spirit brings. And look, I realize that for most of us, and I'll throw myself in this uh, group, that sounds far off. I'm not even sure if I've ever really even experienced that, but I'll say this. I don't think there would be any better way to both celebrate and commemorate Easter And to dig out from within your own soul a simple curiosity. (laughs) A curiosity about the work of the Spirit. Where we begin even to ask Him that we might look into the gospel and find what it is that He's offered there in Christ. And that maybe then He could get at the root of what it makes, what makes me me, and transform me there. There's nothing higher than that. Nothing bigger than that. Paul has taken us up into the nosebleed sections of the gospel when we start to realize what it means to walk and to live as a child of God in the light of the Spirit. That's an invitation. Let's pray. And Lord, we pray that even as we lift our voices and sing in closing this morning, would you take us by the hand and walk us into that? The streams on earth we've tasted, they're just little streams, but Father, there's some times in which we need, we need it to be a little stronger Would you this morning pour out your spirit on all of us, on all these who came, 
and convince us of sin and of righteousness and lead us to the goodness of what you've accomplished for us in Christ. Would you do that? Lord, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.